Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Resky. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. Let's get started. Why don't we just open in a word of prayer and then uh, a couple announcements and we'll get started. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you so much that we are able to gather like this together and focus our hearts and minds on your word. It's such a privilege. And we just pray that your word would be illuminated for us today by your Holy Spirit. And you would show us what we need to learn, what we need to see. You would speak to us. Open our eyes, Lord, that we may behold wonderful things from your law. In your name we pray. Amen. So, well, good, Job. Let's uh, let's get right into it. Actually, before we get into it, I don't know if I have I told you guys about my dog Obi. I don't think I have, and I know a lot of you guys have dogs, but my dog, my dog is just something special. In fact, I think there's no dog like my dog. <laughs> my dog is loyal and faithful, and the best part about my dog, by far, is that he loves me. My dog loves me, and he loves me purely for me. His love is his love is pure. Now, my wife, she thinks I'm crazy. She says, does Obi love you for nothing? He doesn't love you. He loves your snacks. Take away his snacks, and he will curse you to your face. To which I reply... You want to bet? <laughs> and that, my friends, is the entire book of Job in a nutshell. Thank you. Thank you, Obi. Good night. Let's, let's close in prayer. That's a, that's Job starts off with a couple paragraphs that set the tone for the entire book. They basically tell you that Job is very, very wealthy and very, very righteous. And right then in chapter one, God and Satan get into a conversation. And God says something like I said about Obi. Have you considered, it says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him, blameless, upright, pure, and he loves me. And Satan says, does Job love you for nothing? You put a hedge about him. You've rewarded him. Of course he loves you. Job doesn't love you. He loves your stuff. <laughs> you just blessed him. Of course he loves you. Satan says, take away his stuff and he will curse you to your face. And God effectively says, I won't do that, but I will allow you to do that. So you can take away all his stuff. And there's the first wave of suffering that comes over Job, which all his stuff is taken away, including his family, all his children, but not his wife. But all his stuff is taken away. And at the end of that, that's the end of chapter one, Job responds beautifully. Job says these wonderful words that we quote all the time. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. It says he fell on his face and worshiped God in the face of all that. And then it says, and all this Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So that ends really well. That's the end of chapter one. Then in chapter two, God and Satan have another conversation. Mirrors the first one, and God says, if you consider my servant Job, upright, devout, steadfast, and he's been steadfast and has maintained his integrity despite all the things you incited me to do to him without any fault of his own. And Satan says this memorable verse, chapter two, verse four, skin for skin, a man will give anything in exchange for his life, but reach out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And God effectively says, well, I won't do that, but I will let you do that. 
And so Satan sends awful boils and sores all over Job's body. And the Bible says it covers Job from heel, from the heel of his foot to the crown of his head, covered with awful boils and sores. And in the middle of chapter two, Job is sitting in a pile of ashes, scraping his sores with a broken piece of pottery, just a pathetic figure. And his wife comes along and says, why do you maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. And Job says, no. You are speaking as a foolish woman. Absolutely not. I, I accept good things from the Lord. How would we not then accept bad things from the Lord? I won't do that. So that's the second wave. Job's health is taken away. And then have three friends show up. And they sit with him in silence for seven days and seven nights. That's the end of chapter two. So if the book ended there, and if it was just those two chapters, it would be a nice, tight story of grace under pressure. It would be a great story of stoic resolve, heroic resolve in the face of suffering, because you have the suffering laid out for you already in the first two chapters. So anyway, if the book ended right there, it would be a really nice story for us. Of a, it would be a great example for us of resolve. It would be an example of grace under pressure, how to respond to suffering. And you should respond to suffering with steely, steely resolve the way Job did. And if you get suffering, you should be worshiping God. And, and that would be the lesson of the book. It wouldn't be a particularly interesting book. It wouldn't have a lot of tension to it. It would just be a nice example for us. But it does not end there. It starts off with a series of dialogues, and Job speaks first, and Job opens his mouth, and in chapter 3, for the entire chapter, curses the day he was born. And the language he uses, I actually got this from Dr. Bob this week, we were chatting about it. The language Job uses is language that we would now consider to be the language of clinical depression. You get a window into the dark night of Job's soul in chapter 3, and he just lays it out and says, I wish I was dead. I wish I had never been born. And you go from this heroic, steely resolve at the end of chapter two, and you say, wow, he's doing really well. And then you see inside his soul. And as a reader, it just pulls you right in because you see the blackness, the darkness of his soul. And then what ensues after that is a series of dialogues with Job's friends in three cycles, which I'll show you in a second. And then a fourth friend shows up named Elihu. Elihu speaks, and then God speaks. That's the conclusion. Now, somewhere in that last part there, uh, Job does speak again. I don't have that up here, but Job will speak again. I have this all in brackets up here on your screen, these last parts, because that's the part that Job's going to cover next week. So come back for that. Now, a couple of facts about the book of Job before we go on and go into the meat of the book. It's a uh, authorship is really unclear. And the one fact about Job that everyone knows, I'm sure all of you knew as you walked in this morning, it's a very old book, the oldest book in the Bible. But I was, uh, everyone kind of knows that. But I was surprised to learn that that view is not universal. Uh, for example, in Jewish tradition, not that I know a lot about it, but I read about it this week, in Jewish tradition, Moses wrote the book of Job. Well, that would place it, you know, as a book that's contemporaneous with the Pentateuch, so much later in time. And there are some scholars who say, well, given the language that's used, it must be much later in time. But that's a minority view. Most, most scholars say, oldest book of the Bible will make it six to 9,000 years old. And people love the book of Job. People love the book of Job. I'm sure for some of you, it's your favorite book of the Bible. It was my, my father's favorite book of the Bible. People love the book of Job. And part of it is that it is a literary masterpiece. Job has just stood the test of time. Part of it is that it uses very sophisticated language, very high-minded language to deal with very sophisticated arguments. The language used in the book of Job, the Hebrew words and phrases, some of them are not found anywhere else in the Hebrew scripture, just in the book of Job. 
It uses poetic dialogue to search for truth. That's something that we would now, many of us, would just, or most of us would associate with uh, Socrates, the Socratic method, but Socrates lived thousands of years after Job. And its primary literary device is that you, the reader, know what the characters don't, and that's what makes it exciting. That's what makes it interesting. That's what makes it compelling, because you and I know the heavenly scene and the debate and the wager, and the characters don't. When the friends show up and they start saying, oh, Job, you must have sinned. Surely you did something wrong to deserve this. You and I know that that's not true. And when Job is saying, no, no, but I didn't. Well, you know, you and I know that's true. Now, they are in real time trying to wrestle these things out and figure these out through all this dialogue. But you and I have the backstory. And so we're kind of in the know and they're in the dark, but they're wrestling with it, trying to figure it out. And that's what makes it compelling and moves the story along. But there's another part of Job that I think has helped us stand the test of time. And that most stories, most great epic stories, will set up a tension and then resolve it. You'll have a story about a good king and a good kingdom, and some bad king comes along to attack that kingdom. And at the end, there's this epic climactic battle, and a good king vanquishes a bad king. Victory. And that is tension, and then tension resolved. Job sets up a tension and leaves it unresolved. Job sets up this tension of why is there suffering in the world, but the fundamental why question is not answered. And that makes it so interesting. And so this is why, it was part of the reason why it's spoken to people for up to 9,000 years. It's just a fascinating book. So what does it have for us today in the next hour or so? First, a couple thoughts on Job's friends. Job's friends are a story of good times, bad times, and you know I've had my share. I'm always glad when someone gets an obscure reference. Uh, the good times are when they sit in silence with him for seven days. Everyone loves that. Everyone loves that. And you got to think, like, do you really have friends that would come and sit with you in calamity if you were going through something for seven days and seven nights in silence? I mean, they are living out the passage that says, mourn with those who mourn, weep with those who weep. It's beautiful. Everyone loves this part. But then they open their mouths and begin to speak. And that's the bad times, right? That's the bad part. And what they're what they coming out of, the perspective they are coming out of is the retribution principle. Now, they never use those words, but this is their philosophy and it drives everything they say, and they never leave it. They continually come at Job again and again with a retribution principle. And the retribution principle is very simple. It says good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. Goodness is rewarded, evil is punished. That's the retribution principle. They believe it. Now, I want to have some empathy for Job's friends. And I want to do this kind of a personal conviction about this, because I read stories in the Bible about people that seem like idiots. And I like to place myself in the story and think, oh, if I was there, I would have seen the resurrection coming. <laughs> I mean, a mile away. And if I was there, I would never have denied Jesus when the cock tried. I mean, I like to place myself in the story and say, oh, these people are idiots. But me, I would, I would never. And I want to, so I really want to try as I read the Bible to have more empathy for people like this. As I walk through and I read what they said, what they did, give them the world they're in, would I have done the same thing? Probably worse. Probably worse. So I want to have empathy for them. They, we know that they are wrong. We know that they're wrong in the retribution principle because of the prologue and the epilogue. In the prologue, God sets up this story very clearly. It says, this is my servant Job. He is righteous. God himself has declared him righteous, right? There's, he has done nothing to deserve this. So we know that the Job's friends are wrong and the retribution principle they're talking about is wrong. And then at the end of the book, God comes back and says, you three friends were wrong about what you said about my servant Job. You need to repent. So we know the retribution principle is wrong. And yet... We say this stuff all the time. I say this stuff all the time. Forget you, but I, I do this. 
I will say things like, look, to the extent you live by Christian principles, your life will go better. I think that's true. Look, if you, if you are a responsible person, you're responsible financially, you're responsible morally, you don't cheat on your taxes, you don't cheat on your spouse, you love your kids, you try to be a good family person, right? You try to be other-centered. You just live according to Christian principles. Even if you are not a believer, your life will go better. That sounds a little bit like the retribution principle. Good things will happen to good people. Is that true? Maybe the world does work this way. Let me give you a couple more examples. You probably heard this little fact, because it's cited all the time, that uh, if you do three things, you will have only a 1% chance of being in poverty. Right? Get a high school diploma. Don't have a child out of wedlock. And stay away from substance abuse. Those three things, if you just do those three things, your chances of being in poverty are less than 1%. So if, if you, I don't even know if that's true. I've just heard it quoted a lot. But if you believe that's true and you meet someone in poverty, what do you think? Well, I don't know where you went wrong. Surely. And you end up sounding like Job's friends. It sounds like the retribution principle. I don't know where you went wrong, but surely you must have done something to deserve this. Huh? The retribution principle is correct as a matter of probability. Job's friends make the mistake in drawing the conclusion that in each specific case, it has to be true. So the three principles of staying out of property, yeah, as a general rule, it's good to follow. But bad things sometimes happen. So that's one way to resolve the tension. I'm going to get to that. I'm going to go on with this for another minute or so, because I have uh, other examples of this. So if, for example, a calamity befalls a big city, we would, could you say, is it right to say those people in that big city are godless sinners and they deserve it? They have it coming. But if a tornado hits my neighborhood, I say, well, that's just a weather event. That could happen to anybody. Maybe there's someone in a big city who says, good, Jim finally got what's coming to him. It's a worthless sinner. I always knew he was going to get this, and now it's finally happened. It's the justice of God coming down on Jim's house. Good. But that's the retribution principle. Does it work? Does it work? Does it work most of the time, but not all the time? Maybe that's the way to resolve it. I think Job comes along with the third way and, 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 and has a lot to say to us about this. So the main theme of the book of Job is, uh, most people would say, is suffering and how to deal with suffering and the suffering question. I think the main question of the book of Job is really, how does the world work? Suffering is just the occasion to give these guys something to talk about. Suffering is what comes along and says, now you have to wrestle with how the world works. And they spend 30-some chapters wrestling with how the world works. And the reason I say that is suffering is always, always leads to the why question. When you go through suffering, you always say, why? Why, why? Why am I suffering? And there are two ways to resolve this. This is where that third way bit comes in. Two ways to resolve the suffering question when you go through suffering. There's a general religious view, the general religious way to resolve suffering, which is that we live in a moral universe, our decisions matter, actions have consequences, and the retribution principle applies. This is a created world. It's a world of order and not chaos. And sin is real, so suffering must be your fault. And I'm not saying this is the Christian view. I'm saying this is the traditional religious view. The irreligious view is about is just about the opposite. We live in an amoral universe. We're evolutionary accidents. Life is random. It's not a universe of order. It's a universe of chaos. You could keep your nose clean your whole life. You could be you could be a great person, die young and penniless. It doesn't. There's no order to this. 
You could be an evil person, evil, the worst evil dictator the world ever seen and die happily and happy and comfortable, live a long life of ease and comfort. Life is random. It's an amoral universe. There's no such thing as sin. So if you're suffering, it's someone else's fault. Go sue them, right? It's not your fault if you're suffering. There's a whole line of thought here we could go down, which is that people who hold the irreligious view in general, when they say it's an amoral universe, you say, okay, but are you okay if people, if, if, if the Nazis had won World War II? No, that would be a tragedy. And make it maybe more contemporary, contemporary where you say, are you okay if people that are racist or bigoted have no repercussions for their actions? They would say, no, I want a world of justice. So I would say, okay, so that sounds like you want or you believe in a moral universe, not an amoral universe. Okay, that's a philosophical way of wrestling with those kinds of questions. Job actually doesn't go down that road. This is where Job, I think, has a third way that uh, uh, can speak to us today. It doesn't quite go down that kind of philosophical argument. It tackles it in a different way. There are three elements in the book of Job that create the whole narrative tension. I got this from the Bible Project, uh, and they actually got it from someone else. But I think this is brilliant. There are three elements of the book of Job that create the whole narrative tension that make it interesting. Three things, because they're, they're talked about incessantly through the book, but then these three things cannot all be true at the same time. And that's what makes it interesting. God is just, Job is innocent, and the retribution principle. God is just, Job is innocent, and the retribution principle. And the characters all resolve this tension of these three things in different ways. The friends will say, God is just, the retribution principle works, therefore, Job must have sinned. Job would say, I am just, the retribution principle doesn't work, therefore, God is not just. God comes along later and says, I am just, Job is innocent, but where does that leave the retribution principle? Three responses. I have a couple passages on this. I won't take long on this because this is this is the part of the book that's very obvious, and I'm sure in your reading it comes off of the page because the, the the three friends take this retribution principle perspective and they they just beam it at Job relentlessly through the whole book through like thirty chapters. So it comes out everywhere. So just a few examples, and we'll move on. Chapter four, verse seven. This is Eliphaz speaking. Remember who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? said, look around you, the world around you, the good things happen to good people. And then chapter 15, the wicked man rise in pain all his days through all the years that are laid up for the ruthless. He will not be rich and his wealth will not endure, nor will his possessions spread over all the earth. Right? Good things will not happen to bad people. And then Bildad, second friend, he comes along in chapter 18 and these are just samples because they, they do this again and again. Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out and the flame of his fire does not shine. Terrors frighten him on every side and chase him at his heels. Oh, he may look good from the outside, but he's riddled with anxiety on the inside. Bad things happen to bad people. And then Zophar in chapter 20. Do you not know this from of old since man was placed on earth that the exulting of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless but for a moment? Though his height mount up to the heavens and his head reach to the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. Bad things will happen to bad people. And they go on to say things like, look, they may look like they have a good life, but their children will go astray. And they will never have a legacy. They'll all be cut off. Even though it looks like it for the moment, in the end, bad things happen to bad people. Okay? That's Job's friends. Job's thought is much more nuanced. 
his response is much more nuanced. And to understand Job's response to this and how he resolves the tension of those three elements, you have to see Job's response in terms of two progressions that he makes. And the first one probably was apparent to you, especially if you sat down and read the, this week's reading all in one sitting. So if you sit in one sitting and read it through, this kind of jumps out at you. If you read it like a, you know, a couple of chapters in a day, it's, uh, you could miss it. But if you read it straight through, it's really obvious. This is his persistent and growing self-vindication, right? So Job says initially, and this is in chapter nine, he dare not question God. He dare not question God. He says, how then can I answer him and choose my words before him? For though I were right, I could not answer. And in chapter 9, verse 32, he says, he is not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there was someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. If only, if only. Then I would speak up without fear of him, but as it stands with me, I cannot. I would never dream of confronting God face to face with this. I couldn't possibly, maybe if I had a mediator, I could, but there's no way I could do that. Okay, that's chapter nine. But as time goes on, Job would question God, and it really starts in chapter 13. But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Look at that statement of self-indication. Though he slay me, he could do that, but I'll still hope in him. I'll still do the right thing. Lord knows. It's not easy, but I'll do it. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. And at 13, verse 18, behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. He's getting his nerve up. And then eventually, he's eager to question God and present his case. In chapter 23, I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No. He would pay attention to me. There, an upright man, like myself, would argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. So Job has gone from, no, I couldn't possibly dream of talking to God without a mediator. I mean, it wouldn't even occur to me. No, I couldn't possibly. Now he's saying, I want to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with God, and I would win. He's really got his nerve up. That's the first progression, his growing and persistent self-indication. But there's another progression in Job, and it's his drift from that religious view I talked about before to the irreligious view and back. And remember, the religious view says there's a moral universe. It's a universe of order, not chaos. There is such a thing as sin. The retribution principle applies. That's the religious view. The irreligious view says it's an amoral universe. It's all random. It's chaos and not order. There's no such thing as retribution principle. It doesn't work. And Job just drifts back and forth between this. And if, if you see that progression in the life of Job, it helps you understand what Job is saying. So for example, in, in uh, chapter seven, Job's question is, why is it a moral universe in the first place? In chapter seven, he says, what is man that you make so much of him, that you set your heart on him? And I skipped some verses here, but he says, you, why do you pay attention to man? Why do you care? And then in verse 20, if I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you care? What difference does it make to you? And I don't, know, I don't know if you've ever been witnessing to somebody, sharing your faith with somebody, and you're talking to them about sin and their sin problem and their need for a savior. And they say, wait, wait, hold the phone. 
hold on a second. You're, you're trying to tell me that there's some great God of the galaxies. And every time I say a swear word, there's some big three ring binder in the sky. And God makes a little chit. Oh, Jim did it again. <laughs> really? That's the way it works. Some big ledger that keeps a record of my sin. Now, I said those words kind of sarcastically. Job doesn't really say it sarcastically, but he's saying kind of the same thing. Like, he's not doubting it. He's not saying it's not there. He's saying, why, why do you care? What, what, <laughs> would, it, would it spoil some grand eternal plan? If I commit a sin, what difference does it make to you? Why is it a moral universe in the first place? He's really going drifting, to that, drifting towards that irreligious view. But it gets a little worse. He says in chapter 9, basically, that the thought, it's all random, and God is the one who made it that way. He said, it is all one. Therefore, I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, by the way, stop, let me stop a second. You can almost not believe that this verse 23 is in the Bible. When disaster brings sudden death, he, God, mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, then who is it? So Job is not saying the world is random, therefore God is not there. There is no such thing as God. He's saying it is random, and you're the one who made it that way. It's almost a little worse. And then he keeps going. It's all random, it's hopeless, and it's all God's fault. Chapter 12, verse 17, he leads counselors away stripped, and judges he makes fools. He looses the bonds of kings and binds a waistcloth on their hips. He leads priests away stripped and overthrows the mighty. Who's he talking about? Counselors, judges, kings, priests, there's all good people. And what's happening to them? They're all being laid low. And who's doing it? God is the one doing it. I think, if friends keep saying good things happen to good people, he says, let me, let, me, let me give you some examples of good people. Bad things happen to them, and God is the one doing it. And then he says this, it's very poignant, it's poetic, it's, but it's very sad. Chapter 14, verse 19, the waters wear away the stones, the torrents wash away the soil of the earth, so you, God, destroy the hope of man. It's hopeless down here, and you're the one who made it that way. Now, for the retribution principle, you probably remember this passage because this is kind of a famous one. He takes that head on in chapter 21, and he says, why do the wicked live, reach old age, grow mighty in power? And that thought the friends had said that I didn't put on the screen for you, the friends said, well, yeah, it might look like they live, but their children, they'll go astray, and the legacy is destroyed. Job says, oh yeah? Their offspring are established in their own presence. Their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear. They're not filled with anxiety day and night. No rod of God is upon them. Their bull breeds without fail. Their cow calves and does not miscarry. They've got it really, really good. And you say, yeah, well, these are people that are flying below the radar screen that have not, you know, come out and, 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 and uh, you know, flaunted God to his face. Okay, so Job says, oh, yeah? They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. He's saying these are people who completely flaunt God. They flaunt God to his face. Depart from us. Their lives go really well. And so just a quick aside, personal reflection. In my own career, I've seen lots of wonderful people, great people. I've also seen a lot of real jerks. People that are sharp elbows, knives out, humiliating others, pushing others aside to get ahead. And you sit those people, watch those people, and you say, well, someday they're going to get theirs. They're going to be a comeuppance. 
justice will prevail. They'll get, they'll get there someday. And you know what I found? They do extremely well. <laughs> they end up running the department, sometimes running the firm. They do extremely well, right? And I'm sitting there like Job's, like Job, like I'm like Job 21. Why do the wicked live and reach old age and grow mighty in power? Shouldn't the retribution principle apply? Surely the retribution principle applies somehow. But he drifts to the irreligious view, but he never curses God, and he never leaves his faith in God. And he comes back, and he says some of those beautiful words in the Old Testament. My hope is in God alone, is this theme. Chapter 19, verse 27. But I know that my Redeemer lives. This is the mediator he was talking about earlier. I know that my Redeemer lives. For at the last, he will stand upon the earth. Incredible words of faith, right? This is someone looking ahead thousands of years saying, I don't know what it, form it will take, what it will look like, but I have my faith in the coming Messiah. I know that my Redeemer lives, solid faith. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eye shall behold, my eye shall behold, and not another. Great words of a bodily resurrection, not just some afterlife, so like some other cultures at the time would have thought about an afterlife, but a bodily resurrection. I will see God in my own flesh. I know that my Redeemer lives. So Job drifts back and forth, but doesn't, never curses God and comes back to this, this point of view. But if you see that kind of drift, first of all, his progression and his growing self-indication and his drift from the religious to the irreligious, it helps you understand how Job responds to his friends. But why does it sound so convoluted? I think it's because of this, and I tried to put this in a chart to kind of make it a little clear. Job says, I am innocent. And there's shades of truth in what he's saying, because we know that he's innocent from the prologue. He's completely innocent. He didn't do anything to deserve this, but he's not truly innocent. He himself, in chapter 13, talks about the sins of his youth. So he's not saying, I am perfect and I never sinned. I just didn't do anything to deserve this. Job's friends hold to the retribution principle. They say, Job, you're a sinner, and they're right. Job was a sinner, just not this time. He was innocent in this case. He didn't do anything to deserve this, but there's a shade of truth in that. Because, and the more, more Job protests his innocence, he says, I'm innocent, the more incensed the friends get. They get angrier and angrier at him. They start making up sins, right? You must have like, you know, not paid your workers or something, right? They just can't believe it. But they're talking past each other because there's a shade of truth in everything they're saying. And this is part of wisdom literature. And it's a little bit pat like what you were saying before. Proverbs comes along and says, this is kind of the way the world works. If you do these things, the good things will happen. Ecclesiastes and Job come along and say, yeah, but not always. Not always. But is there a shade of truth in the retribution principle? I think there is, and I'm getting there. So before I get there, I think this is maybe the most important slide. I really want to share this with you today. Uh, some of this comes from a sermon on Job from Tim Keller. I mentioned wisdom literature. I thought this is the place to bring it up. What is wisdom? What is wisdom? If you, if you read the book of Proverbs, Proverbs is all about wisdom. Wisdom for living. If you abide in the, by these principles, life will go better. That is wisdom. That's our level of wisdom. Wisdom is seeing the big picture. Wisdom is living in touch with reality. You know, if you're, if you're irresponsible, bad things will happen. You're living out of touch with reality. Wisdom is seeing the big picture, living in touch with reality. And the point here is that God has a higher wisdom than us. God sees the big picture we can't see, and God knows the reason for suffering, even if we don't. So this is the big point I want to make today. Put it in red so we all remember it. God can't tell you why you're suffering. He can't tell you why you're suffering. 
Let me put it this way. Job 13, Job is starting to come off the rails, right? He's starting to really get his, he's, he's getting all riled up and he's starting to say, this is unjust and I, I want to I, I argue with God. What if chapter 14, verse 1, God shows up again and God says, look, Job, 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 calm down. You're going to get it all back. It's going to be okay. And then chapter 14, verse 2 says, oh, Job says, oh, in that case, I'm good. Now, now that I know what's in it for me, I can suffer for you. What would chapter 14, verse 3 say? Satan wins. Satan wins the bet. So if you say, if you say, Lord, I can suffer for you. I can suffer for you as long as I know what's in it for me. Then I can suffer. I think if you go through life like that, you're bound to have to go through that kind of suffering again. Because God is teaching you something. You don't know what it is. You don't, we don't know. But God is trying to teach you something. Maybe something in your life that you're too dependent on. Maybe something's becoming an idol in your life. And God's using suffering to get that away from you. You don't know. You can't see the time. But you say, if I only knew why I could get through this. What you're saying to God is, if I knew it was in it for me, I could trust you. And Job is a book that says, it's all about trust. And that is the third way. There's the religious way, the irreligious way. And Job says, you got to trust me, even if you don't know the answer. What I see, the wisdom I see is much higher than what you can see. But are we done that yet? No, not just yet. Because the gospel comes through in the book of Job. And I want to share this with you guys today. Is the retribution principle true? Yes, I think it is. Just not in the way that Job's friends thought it was. The retribution principle says the good are rewarded and the evil are punished. Is that true? The reality is no one is good. None of us are good. So if you come out and say, I don't understand it. Why do bad things happen to good people? The whole premise of your question is wrong because there are no good people. We're not good people. We're sinners saved by grace. Romans is so clear on that, right? For all sin to fall short of the glory of God. And so you're sitting there saying, I don't get it. These are good people. There are bad things happening. Like that, we stop. There are no good people. That is the reality. And th there's a great verse in Job about that. Chapter 11, verse 6. And I do think there's some nuggets of truth in what the friends say, despite the fact that their whole premise is wrong. But this is one of them. 11, verse 6, Zophar says, he's talking to Job, suffering with the sores and all that. He says, know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. So here's what happens. I go through life like this. I think this is my level of comfort and pain. And then a bad thing happens. And I say, wait, why does that happen? That's, that's an anomaly. Life's supposed to be like this. In fact, life's supposed to be like this, ever getting more better and more comfortable all the time. And now something bad happened. I don't get it. That's an anomaly. It shouldn't. When can I get back to that trend line? What I really deserve is like this. What I should be saying is when there's a little bump and something good happens, I just say, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. What I really deserve is death and hell. And why should anything good ever happen to me, ever? I should be shocked if I have a little bump in my line. But I'm not. I go there and say, I can't believe it. Nothing happened. God owes me an answer. I think that's part of the message of Job. Job is not truly innocent. There was only one who was, and only one who could truly protest his innocence. And now, here comes to what I really want to share with you today. All the protestations of Job, of his innocence in the book of Job, are messianic. It's Job speaking, but it's Jesus' voice coming through the book of Job, and that's the gospel according to Job. Let me show you a couple of these. 
Job chapter six. This is Job speaking, but I want you to hear Jesus's voice coming through. Oh, that I might have my request and that God will fulfill my hope that it would please God to crush me. That he would let loose his hand and cut me off. Does that sound familiar? Isaiah 53 verse five. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Isaiah 53, verse 8, he was cut off out of the land of the living. Let's keep going. 16, again, this is Job speaking. Listen for the voice of Jesus coming through. Surely now God has worn me out. He has made desolate all my company. Men have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me insolently on the cheek. Was Job struck insolently on the cheek? No. This is Jesus talking. They mass themselves together against me. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease. I was in heaven in the throne room with the right hand of God for all eternity before coming here. I was at ease and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. My face is red with weeping and on my eyelids is deep darkness. When the sky went black and the deep darkness came for three hours in the day of crucifixion, Jesus faced the deep darkness of our sins that we deserved all fell on him. Job 19, again, hear the voice of Jesus coming through. He has stripped me from my glory and taken the crown from my head. Did Job have a crown? This is Jesus talking. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. And my hope has he pulled up like a tree. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. All my disciples have scattered. All my intimate friends abhor me. And those whom I love have turned against me. Someone in my inner circle that I trusted betrayed me. Job 30. And now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. And get this. God has cast me into the mire and I become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You read Job, you say, what a nice story about suffering. These guys talking about philosophy. What does it mean? It's all, it's all gospel. It's all the voice of Jesus coming through the book of Job. It's all Jesus. Now, where does it lead the retribution principle? Does it work? It didn't work out for Jesus. He lived a pretty good life. Didn't seem to end that well for him. But does it work ultimately? Will evil be punished and righteousness be rewarded? Ultimately, the answer is yes, evil will be punished. There is justice. There is a judgment day. But for those of us who are in Christ, who have given our lives to Christ and trusted him for our salvation, Jesus is punished on our behalf. But all evil will be punished. All our evil will be punished because he was punished for all our sin transferred to him. And will good be rewarded? Yes, but there's only one who is good. There's only one who is good. And the miracle, the great exchange we will be rewarded for his goodness, all transferred to us. So yes, it works. The one, this is the summary of the book of Job. The one true innocent suffers, so we don't have to. Or you can put it this way, bad things happen to him, so good things can happen to us. And with that, take any questions or comments, any discussion you might have. Yeah, just a couple quick comments. One, Maybe you can share some thoughts on the conversation that God had with Satan. I, I sometimes wonder why this book wasn't written, and that could have been excluded totally because you wonder 
is it to show that God is sovereign or, you know, God is not tempted by saying we know that. But I, so I, sometimes I question why that was in there. A second thing, does your wife know the role you gave her in that analogy? She does. Okay. And the third thing, one of my favorite pastors, Dr. Stanley, used to say, you reap what you sow, later than you sow, more than you sow it. So that's not really retribution, but that is a life principle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. It's not a retribution per se. Right. But I, I do agree with that. So I guess a couple thoughts. Without the con- I think without the conversation, the heavenly conversation, the book has a totally different tone. Right. And then it's just some guys, you know, it's just come to sit there and say, how does life work? I don't know. What do you think? How does life work? I don't know. What do you think? And they're arguing. And you as a reader would say, well, who, who, maybe Joe's friends are right. Maybe Joe really did sin. He's just denying. He's in denial. And that's the message of the book. Don't deny your sin because Joe was really in denial. So you kind of need that setup to understand the book. But it does, re- it's, a, it's a big Bible difficulty. It's a great literary device. It makes for a great story. There's a reason it's in there, but it does raise some Bible difficulties. So, for example, God and Satan have some kind of casual conversation. Is that really the way heaven works? It says the angels are walking to the throne room, and among them is Satan. Satan just strolls in the throne room of God. Is that the way it works? God talks to him, saying, where you been? And he says, oh, wandering to and fro about the earth. Oh, okay. They're like just chatting. And then, and then he says, have you seen my servant Job? And then, the, you know, this, and then Satan takes a contrary position. And some people say, is that really the way heaven works? Does that work? Is that the way it works now? Does God talk? Are they talking about me that way right now? And some of the author scholars reading this say, uh, maybe. But and this is where I'll drift into Hebrew that I don't know, but read about it. That the word Satan really just means opposer. Someone who's in opposition. And actually, in Hebrew, there's a definite article, the Satan. The Satan talks to God. And that's usually doesn't come through in any English translations. It's just Satan talking to God, not the Satan. But for example, the same Hebrew word here is used when the angel of the Lord confronts Balaam's donkey. And it says, the angel of the Lord is the Satan. And the translators always say, well, the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose Balaam, in opposition to Balaam, because that's what the Satan means. So there's an interpretation of this that I wasn't going to go into until you asked, that says that it's not really the devil, and this is not a place where we get our theology of the devil. This might be just one of the angels who is giving a contrary view to God. It's that kind of conversation, because he's, he's taking the role of the opposer, saying, oh, does God Job love you for nothing? And if you think about that, that might make it make a little more sense. Well, I always looked at the Hebrew version, which says the adversary. The adversary. And I always took that as being like a prosecuting attorney. Yeah. Uh, rather than the Satan of Jesus' time. That might make a lot of sense because it's all set up like a courtroom drama anyway. Right, right. But what I wanted to um, point out was when I went through and I noticed for the first time that our three friends all argued about retribution. And one of the points they were making was that, you know, if you're faithful, in the end, your family will be restored and, and all the good things will come back to you. And, and all three of them made that argument. And I thought, gee, that's what really happened. They were right. It really <laughs> did happen. And so what's wrong with these guys? <laughs> right. So this is the retribution principle kind of worked, but not the way they thought it did. Yeah, go ahead, Jim. I love how you weave the story, the big picture, and what's really happening here. So great job. I wanted to go back to your 
your sort of thesis slide where you had in red letters, yeah, God yeah. can't do that. God can't tell you why. God can't, God can't tell you why. And just what seems to me is not that God can't tell you why. He chooses not to tell you why. Right. And what what uh, verse comes to mind to me is First Peter. He says, uh, don't be surprised at the trials that you're going through. Why? That the proof of your faith, which is more precious than gold, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so he chooses not to tell Job how the story is going to end, partly to prove his faith, right? And it reminds me of the story of Martha, where Jesus delays coming back to see Lazarus, to heal Lazarus. He delays intentionally. And then he has this conversation with Martha. And he says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And he has this conversation before he raises Lazarus, and he gives her a chance to declare her faith. He says, do you believe that? If he asked her that question after Lazarus rises from the dead, who cares? Sure. So, so he comes back to Job, and Job declares his faith apart from sight, and that's precious, yeah. right? He chooses not to because he gives him an opportunity to believe yeah. that my Redeemer lives, and at the end, I will see him from my resurrected body. I'll see him. And so God, I think, chooses to allow us to be in a position where we have to live by faith, because that's much better. That's great, Jim. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, it's uh, so James, the book of James does refer back to Job and talks about this steadfastness under suffering. And you read this kind of pattern, you say, wait a second, he didn't sound so steadfast. He drifted to that irreligious view and back, he had all these doubts and he, you know, he kind of had this growing sense of self-indication. But at the end, you're right. He says, he never curses God. He never drifts away from it. That wonderful statement of faith, I know that my Redeemer lives. So that's the... And there's a lesson there because you say, can you wrestle with God? Can you, can you, can we as Christians say, I've got these doubts and I want to work them through. And Job says, yes. I mean, yeah, they're, they're, that's exactly what they're doing. Some of those verses that you can't believe are in the Bible. Job actually says that stuff out loud and it's okay to do that. And, but, but you come back to that, to, to trusting your redeemer. Who's next? Oh yeah. Pat. Yeah. To follow up on these points. First of all, that was a great study and I appreciate it. And it's interesting how, Satan epitomizes the irreligious view, skin for skin. Yes. You know, a man will do anything to save his life. Right, right. And in right. fact, we know this side of the cross that Christianity grew because the apostles all were willing to be martyred. Right. That's how it grows. On this point, though, where God can't tell you why you're suffering. That theme, in a broader sense, runs throughout the Bible. I mean, Abram is called out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Go, go to, I'm gonna, you're, you're going to go to a land I will show you. Later, he's told to sacrifice his son Isaac in a three-day journey. God doesn't tell him how it's going to end. And so you have that repeatedly, Joseph in prison, etc. What is interesting, though, with this is there are echoes of Job in Luke's gospel, just before Jesus tells Peter that he will deny him three times, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I am praying for you. Yeah. And so God may not tell us what the end is, but if you are a follower, he will pray for you. 
That's great. Well, it's our, that and that is our mediator that Jeff yeah. talks about, our, right. our mediator and our redeemer. Great yeah. point. Thanks, Pat. Uh, Jim, thanks. And, and I'm really glad you brought up Tim Keller because I think that he was a great gift to the body of Christ and w what a legacy. And, you know, I just, I think we should celebrate that and, and all think about that. But uh, you know, these are, these are some great points and, and, you know, it made me think of Jacob and wrestling with God, you know, and that's what yeah. we have to do in our lives. I think we have to wrestle with God because I think we all have laments if we're honest, right? You know, and I was reading Psalm 88, and that's one of the two Psalms that's, that's really a negative Psalm. It's by Heman the Ezraite, and he was one of the worshipers of God from, through David. And, and there's, no, there's no victory in that Psalm, and it's a, it's a tremendous lament, you know. And I think that's so important that we grieve with God, because God wants us to grieve, because he's showing us another dimension of his glory, you know, because out of that grieving, you know, there'll be sorrow, but in the morning there'll be, be joy, right? And we, we all have to go through sorrow. Jesus was a man of sorrows. And when Paul was called, what did God say? I'm going to show him how he must suffer for me, you know? And, you know, this light momentary affliction gives us a weight of glory, according to Corinthians, right? So the suffering we go through now whether we realize what it's for or not is really God giving us himself, you know? And last week we talked about providence and the point I was trying to make, and I think it's so clear is it's God being God. That's who he is. And when you die, there's only God. And so he's giving us that dimension as men, because you know what, what we're more than conquerors through Christ. Right, right. And we want to overcome by faith. So the suffering we go through we all should understand that it's for the glory of God. Right. And keep it simple. That's right. Great points. Thanks, sir. Yeah, go ahead. Following up with, with some of the other gentlemen, I think it's very important, and you brought it up there in 933, where he says, if only I had somebody to intercede for me. If only. In 19, he said, no, I'm a redeemer lives. But we have to remember in the New Testament era that we do have Jesus who sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for us. Yes. So what Job doesn't have, we do have. Amen. Number one. Number two. He, well, what Job he, had, he was looking forward to it. He was looking forward to it, but he didn't understand it because right. that was an Old Testament right. philosophy and teaching. Number two, I also thought it was funny in the reading that Job sacrificed prior to his ailment and affliction for his children. Yes. And then afterwards, you don't hear any when he's under When he's under his punishment, whatever it may have been, reason why, when we know that story. You never hear him talk about sacrifice or wanting to sacrifice or offering a sacrifice. Well, he wouldn't because he would say, I'm completely innocent. I didn't do anything. Yes. So in that first, in the first chapter one, where he says, perhaps my children have cursed God in their hearts. And he would say here, I haven't even done that. So I don't have no reason. Yeah, right. Exactly. But he doesn't, he doesn't even think maybe I could just offer a sacrifice just to clean the slate just in case. Yeah. Uh, some others have said, Jim, excellent study. Very helpful. I want to make a couple of points. First is, in the first two chapters, what we see is this conversation that's going on with God. And it tells us that what happens on earth has heavenly and eternal consequences. That things that are happening around us and through us and in us are important. They're important to God because we are his creation and he is working through his creation. The second thing is, you called it retribution principle, 
in my reading, it's often referred to as retribution theology. And so if those are synonymous, then I'll make a suggestion and see what you want to say to it. But And that is that it is not a principle that works. That is the effect. If you want to point to the cause, it's not retribution theology, because theology is all about God. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to suggest from my reading that it's Satan's argument, which is being made by Job's three friends are all arguing that this is what God is like. Right. My how the word works, this is what God is like. My reading would say that's not how God works. That's not what God is like. Everything that's done in Job and throughout all of creation and scripture is for one reason only, and that's for God's glory. And that's what we don't understand is how can he be like that? Mm -hmm. We have to reflect on the theology is everything we're reading, everything we're looking at, all these effects are for one cause, God and his glory. So the question becomes, how does God get the glory out of what we see happening? How do I in my life bring glory to him in the way that I live? Not because of what happens or what I expect in the future. Right, it's and, not, all, and not at all because of what I get out of it. And that's exactly right. Not what I'm getting out of it. It's all for his glory. That's and right. so how do I see that in my life? Right. Great points. I would just say the, uh, yeah, I know that all the, the words retribution theology laden with a lot of meaning, a lot of baggage around it. I would just say in my own amateur layman kind of way, uh, there is retribution for sin. There is ultimate justice. The end. There's a judgment day. But thank God that the acts of judgment fell on him and not me. Right. Jim, just one quick comment. In regards to the conversation at the beginning, Stephen Covey says, begin with the end in mind. It, it really encapsulates the whole story of Job, and it gives me great comfort and peace. So if it's the opposer himself or a spirit or an entity, inevitably it shows the sovereignty of God. Yes. Because at the end of the day, he does what he does only with the permission of God. Absolutely. And God limits what he does. Absolutely. Great point. So God is always the one in control. Amen. Right. So right. he is greater than the ruler of this world. Right. So it does raise these questions. Is God the author of the evil? Is God the author of it? And God is allowing it, but Satan's always the one doing it. And Satan kind of goes him and says, reach out your hand and strike him. And God says, well, I'm not going to do that. But he does allow it. He's, he's always the one in control. Good point. Yeah. When, when trials come, I just remind myself of the crucifixion. Most had scattered, but there were the few that stayed. Yeah. And to look up and to see Christ naked, mock shame, being killed. You know, can you imagine any of them saying this is the greatest thing that ever happened? But yet it was. Right. And we right. just have that, have that faith that he's working in and through things. And ultimately, his will will be done. Right. And trusting that. Right. Great point. Thank you. So I think you brought up a great point. The first two chapters, like if it ended there, but even the third chapter, when Job just pours his heart out, you see the pain, like yeah. like like Dr. Bob said, that that is that is somebody that is just they're broken. Right. Where where that's the friends went off the rails at that point. What should have they have done if they prayed? That at that point, understanding this is beyond our ability. And I think that's such a good thing to to remember that the prayer for that person is what matters. You yeah. can't philosophically try to explain things, but that's why it's so valuable when you tell somebody, "Let's, I'll, I'll pray for you," or even better, "I'll pray for you right now." Let's pray. I, yeah, I don't know the answer to that, Rex, but I think that it does bring up a good principle that there's a there's a philosophical argument about suffering that's interesting. 
but it's not the kind of conversation you have with someone who's in the middle of suffering, yeah. right? When you're in the middle of suffering, just mourn with those who mourn. Right. Prayer for that person is much more valuable than anything you're going to say to them at that moment. Great point. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think I'm going to divide my comments for the believer and the non-believer. And I think many times for the non-believer, Job comes up. How does God allow suffering? How does right. God allow evil? Right. And I think your point of bringing up Christ throughout Job is so very, very important because many times the first step for the non-believer to come to Christ in the softening of his heart is his brokenness. Yes. We're all broken. Yeah. So the answer to that question is none of us deserve and it's, it's in stuff. But I think for the believer, the second quote, I would come to the New Testament and I think is of encouragement. When we suffer, when you have a diagnosis of cancer, when you've been more critically ill, the Bible says that there'll be storms for the just and for the unjust for both of us. Yeah. Number two, we suffer and grieve not like pagans, but with hope. Yes. And I think that's so extremely important that we demonstrate that. And we know that with death, with illness, not on our own, but through the Holy Spirit. How do we grieve? And I think the last thing is our suffering brings glory back to God. How many times have we seen that person who is suffering? And there, I had a I had a patient one time that even in his last on his last week in the emergency room, he was witnessing. He was witnessing. He was witnessing. And again, it takes it all back to God. Yep. Great points. Great points. Uh, this for the non-Christian, your, your first points about the non-Christian saying, well, it doesn't make any sense. Why is there a God? Why does it allow evil? Again, this is not something kind of you say to someone who's in the middle of suffering, but the kind of uh, argument you can make when you're outside of suffering is say, well, if you abandon God as a result of that, you say, I, I don't get it. There's suffering and evil in the world. Therefore, there can be no God. The answer is, well, then you have far worse problems. Because if there is no God, then there's no outrage about the suffering. There's nothing, nothing to be, it's just, we're just evolutionary accidents. So there's no, what difference does it make? Someone suffers and dies, someone doesn't, who cares? Nothing means anything. So you, if, if you're suffering as a reason to abandon God and you go that route, you're going to have far worse problems. Anybody else? All right. Well, since you mentioned Tim Keller, I do want to end with this. You know, Tim Keller just passed recently. Uh, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ really happened, then ultimately God is going to put everything right. Suffering is going to go away. Evil is going to go away. Death is going to go away. Aging is going to go away. Pancreatic cancer is going to go away. Now, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ did not happen, then I guess all bets are off. But if it actually happened, then there's all the hope in the world. Amen. Amen. So let's, uh, let's close in prayer and end with that. Lord God, we, uh, we just want to put our trust in you. We don't always understand what suffering is. We don't understand how to comprehend it. But you do. You are greater than our heart. You know all things. Help us, Lord God, to increase our faith and increase our trust in you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode and remember, on your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace, and on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace. See you next time.